Genesis chapter 4, we are picking back up in our series through Genesis, which we've titled From Creation to New Creation, and we are looking this morning at Genesis 4, picking up where we left off last week at verse 8, and we are going to read down to verse 16. If you're using the church Bible, you should find that on page 3, which should be easy to find. So um, Genesis 4, 8 through 16 on page 3, if you're using the church Bible. And again, before we do um, go to the reading and preaching of God's word, let's Go to him in prayer and let's ask him to bless his word with power and to do in our hearts what only he can do for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would do this morning what you alone can do in the hearts and the minds of men and women. We are image bearers who are fallen and who desperately need your grace and who desperately need the sovereign working of your spirit by your word in our hearts. We need to hear the voice of the Son of God. You have told us that the time is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and will live. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see that in our midst this morning, that you would revive and convict and encourage and comfort and convert and heal your people. We pray, our God, above all things, that you would make us to leave this place with our eyes fixed on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Genesis 4, beginning in verse 1, verse 8. Um, we looked last week at that first interaction, the sacrifice of Cain and Abel, those two sons of Adam and Eve that God sets before us in their sacrifices. God accepts Abel and his sacrifice. God does not accept Cain nor his because Abel sacrifices in faith and Cain seeks to come to God in self-righteousness and in human pride and the arm of flesh. And now we read, and I'll back up actually in verse 6, verse 5, the Lord has revealed to Cain, maybe, and I didn't mention this last week, but a lot of the old writers think that probably fire came down on Abel's sacrifice and didn't on Cain's, and that would be one way that Cain knew he was not accepted and his offering was not accepted. And now in verse 5, for the sake of context, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder if I asked you this morning, what two questions in Genesis 3 and 4 sum up the totality 
of human experience in this fallen world. There are two questions, one in Genesis 3 and one in Genesis 4, that capture for us all of the the sorrowful effects of the fall in this world. And one of those questions is found in Genesis 3-9, where the Lord comes to Adam and Eve and he says, where are you? And the other question is found in Genesis 4-9, where the Lord comes to Cain and he says, where's your brother? Where are you? The, the vertical alienation between man and God. Men do not know God by nature. We do not love God by nature. We are cut off from God by nature. Where are you, God says. And then that horizontal alienation, he says, where's your brother? And ever since the fall, and this is the first account, very interestingly, God in his perfect wisdom puts together for us in these first sections of the fall of man, the alienation man has from God, hiding behind the trees of the garden, now having mis representations of God now making idols in his mind and calling them God and not knowing the God who made all things and who gives all men life and breath and all things and who fills the heavens and the earth and who is absolutely in control of all things and who searches the hearts and minds of man. And then secondly, he reveals for us that alienation between men, that alienation that we see in this world every day. We see that alienation. We see it in our work relationships. We see it in our marriages. We see it in our families. We see it um, at every level of society, we see it between nations, we see it between political parties, we see it in our own interactions around town with people who don't like us and who we don't like, and there's alienation everywhere, and we live in a world of alienation. And you don't have to be a Christian, you don't have to accept this is true to know that that's true. Your own experience tells you that that is the world we live in. There is, there is a deep-seated alienation, and that is because sin brings that vertical alienation and that horizontal alienation. And what Genesis 4 does for us is it takes us from the more important alienation, which is our being separated from God and hostile to God by nature, having chosen the evil and rejected the good, having decided I will do what I want, I will be my own God, I will be my own determiner, no one will tell me how to live my life, I'm not accountable to anyone, and we have then moved out into the horizontal realm, and now God wants us to see the effects of sin in that alienation between man and man. He wants us to understand what sin has done in the world, and so he brings it to bear in that first family that fell, and he brings it to bear, and he shows us that it comes to light in the relationship between Cain and Abel. And what we're going to see this morning is two things. First, we're going to consider how that alienation manifests itself in the way of Cain, and secondly, we're going to consider how that alienation is prefigured to be taken away through the blood of Abel. Notice that as Moses records for us this account, as the Lord instructs us about the interactions between Cain and Abel, and God has accepted Abel and has rejected Cain, that there is sort of a progression in Cain's sin. It's actually very fascinating. It's one of those things that the Cain and Abel story is not a cutesy Sunday school lesson. It's not, it's not meant just for your kids to understand how to play well with their brothers and sisters. It's not a nice moral lesson. Cain and Abel is not just a, a lesson about just love people and just understand that we're all brothers and we should love each other. It's actually revealing for us in a very profound way the psychology of the progression of our own sin. This account is in the Bible for you. This account is in the Bible for me. This is not for us to be onlookers and to say, oh, what a sad event. That really, that really sucks for Abel. That was really terrible for Abel. Man, 
Boo, Cain. Yay, Abel. <laughs> but we are to look at this and we are to say, what is God instructing me? And in the first thing we see about the way of Cain is the progression of Cain's sin. Here's a man who begins with pride. Pride is the root. Pride is always the root. He is a proud worshiper. And he, he decides, I don't need a blood sacrifice. I don't need to offer according to God's commandment. I don't need to come to God in the way that God tells me and instructed Adam and Eve and they taught their sons. I don't need that. I can bring to God of the fruit of my hands. I am the master of my own destiny and I will worship the way I want to worship. And you see, as that pride is then revealed and as God reveals that pride to Cain, the next thing we're told in verse 5 is that is Cain becomes angry. The pride leads to disobedience. The disobedience leads to chastening. The chastening leads to anger. The anger then, notice, leads to resentment. Cain begins to resent his brother Abel. You see that progression. Pride to disobedience. Disobedience is then chastened. The chastening then leads to resentment. And the resentment, the anger, leads to resentment. And then the resentment manifests itself in the great act of violence Jealousy, envy, leading to murder and violence in Cain. I want to read that progression to you one more time because if you, if you outline this, if you took a pen and you went through the text, you would see that all these things are there. Eric Alexander pointed that out. Pride led to disobedience. Disobedience led to God's chastening. God's chastening led to anger. Anger led to resentment. Anger and resentment led to jealousy and envy. And jealousy and envy led to murder and violence. That's the, that's, that's the outworking of sin. That's, that's, our, that's our heart. That's, that's all men. James actually tells us, doesn't he, that desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. That there's a psychology to the way that sin works, and it works that way for everybody. There's no one that has such a perfect control over themselves that this is not the way it works. One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. There's a warning there. You know, John in 1 John will actually set Cain out. And, and what he'll say is that in one sense, everybody is either a spiritual descendant of Cain or a spiritual descendant of Abel. Everyone is either of Cain or of Abel, spiritually. They fall into those two categories. They either know that they're sinful. They either humble themselves before God. They either, like Abel, acknowledge that they are not righteous, that they need a redeemer, that they need redemption, that they need their sins forgiven. Or in pride and self-righteousness, they decide that they will do what they want to do. And then you see that progression in Cain's sin. There's a progressive arrogance in Cain's response to his sin, too. Very interesting. It's not just Cain's sin that there's a progressive uh, development in, but there is a progressive development to his arrogance in response to God. When God finally comes to Cain and he says to him, where is your brother? Note, note how this progression increases in verse 9. The Lord says to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The first thing he says is, I do not know. Sin breathes deception and untruth and dishonesty. He knew exactly where his brother was. He knew exactly what he did. In fact, and this is the really important part, Cain premeditated the murder of Abel. Cain premeditated his brother's murder. Now, there is no intimation in this text whatsoever that Abel said anything provocative to Cain. Abel was not some goody two-shoe judger. Nowhere in here does it say Abel said, brother, boo on you for not doing it God's way. He doesn't say anything. In fact, we have no words recorded of Abel. The only thing we're told, notice, 
Notice this. In verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Cain spoke to Abel's brother. He's already begun to um, experience that controlling anger that Jesus says is the root of murder. Jesus said if you're, you're angry with your brother without cause, you've committed murder. Abel's already committed it. Now he's premeditated. There are many good theologians. I think they're right that what they're saying is that Cain, when he says to his brother, he talked with his brother, he is, he is luring him out to the field in order to murder him. Cain has devised a plan. I'll get rid of Abel. If I get rid of Abel, that gets rid of my problem because my problem is God has accepted Abel and not me. And, and frankly, that's, that's, the way, that's the way the natural man looks at anyone that God's accepted. That's the way we look at anyone who excels. When I remember elementary school, um, horrible grades all through school, horrible grades. Anybody that got a great grade and, and messed the curve up for, for everybody else, we, we, we despise them. How could you study so much and mess the curve up? I mean, we were all going to get a better grade if it wasn't for you. You had to go home and you had to study. Now, that, that is a small microcosmic example of the, the, the anger and the bitterness and the, the enmity that resides in the hearts of natural men toward believers to whom God has had mercy. The only thing that made a difference between Cain and Abel is that God had decided, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And I want to say this this morning. The thing that stirs up the world more than anything is that God decides to have mercy on some and not others. Makes it, it, if that, the, the greatest hostility from the fallen heart of man. Jesus said this in John 17. The world hates you because I took you out of the world. Don't be surprised when the world hates you because I took you out of the world and you're not of the world. God took Abel and separated him into his kingdom by grace, made him see his need for redemption, enabled him to offer that sacrifice that was more excellent and more pleasing because it pointed forward to Jesus Christ. Abel was looking in faith to Jesus. Cain hated Abel because Cain would not look to Jesus in faith. That is the story of human history. Um, now, behind that, Cain's greatest problem was not Abel, it was God. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his short meditation on Cain and Abel, said, Why does Cain murder out of hatred to God? The end of Cain's history, as so the end of all history, is Christ on the cross. Charles Spurgeon once noted that if Cain could have gotten at God's throat, he would have. That's the cross. That's... That's what happens at the cross. You know, Jesus is a type of Abel. The Bible makes that very clear. He is the righteous one who is murdered for his love and faithfulness to his father. And in the murder of Jesus, fallen men, and we are among them by nature, cry out for the blood of God. Because we by nature are unrighteous. Because we by nature love darkness. We love sin. We love what's wrong. We hate anyone who has turned in repentance to God by nature because God has had mercy on them. God has redeemed them. And so Cain's great problem is not just Abel. His great problem is with God. And yet he thinks if I can remove Abel from the picture, my life will be easier. You see the irrationality of sin. By the way, how in the world... Cain convinced himself, if I can just get, and this is why the, the world persecutes Christians the way they do, if I can just get rid of all these Christians, my life will be better. No, no, it won't. 
Your life will be vastly worse, and there will be great judgment. <laughs> it will not be better. Nothing will be better. I love that uh, story of John Calvin at the brink of the persecution in France, and he's writing the preface to one of his, um, one of his uh, commentaries to the king of France, and he essentially says to the king of France, let us live and we will do you good. If Cain had been thinking logically and rationally, he would have said, my brother will bring good to me. My brother is imaging forth the image of God. God is working through my brother in this world, and good is coming out of that, and I want to get on board with that. Instead, Cain irrationally says, if I can get rid of what I am, I am hating and despising in my heart, my life will be better. And you see that Cain even convinces himself, doesn't he? He convinces himself that he's accomplished this. He kills Abel. Maybe he buries his body in the ground. We don't hear of Abel fighting back. We don't hear of Abel uh, speaking back or reproaching or rebuking his brother. Cain gets rid of Abel. He puts him in the ground. He thinks, I've done away with the problem. My life will be easier now. And how do we know that Cain thinks that? Because when God comes to him and when the Lord uh, approaches Cain, notice that he says to Cain, where's your brother? And the first thing he says is, I do not know. Now, let me say this this morning. God knows all the thoughts of all 7 billion people and the intents of their hearts instantaneously and simultaneously at every moment. He knew them from all eternity. The Bible says, before I speak a word, you, O Lord, know it all together. From all eternity, God knew everything that you would say, do. He ordained it all. There's nothing hidden from his eyes. And Cain has deceived himself into thinking that God doesn't know what happened. The pride and the arrogance of deception and untruth and dishonesty, and this is the way it works. Men in the world will commit some great sin, and then they'll lie to cover it up, and there's deception. Um, there's a movie that came out years ago. It was a documentary, fascinating documentary. I forget the title of it. It's on Netflix, and um, it's about a man from France who reinvents himself. This is a true story, as if he were this, this um, boy who went missing years before, and he he um, learns all about the story, and he studies all the details, and he comes to America, and he puts himself in the role of that boy and acts as if he had been taken to France, and he had been kidnapped, and he had escaped, and he convinces even family members that he is the one who had been kidnapped so many years before. And his whole life is this intricate and sophisticated web of deception. And you know, you may say, well, that's just one big example. Watch Jimmy Kimmel's Lie Witness Now. If you think, if you think that there are these just extreme examples, watch Jimmy Kimmel's Lie Witness Now. He will go around to music festivals and they will make up bands to people they're interviewing and they will say, hey, what did you think about this band? And it's a made up band and the people say, oh, that was great. I just saw them the other day. People, people will live in deception and untruth and lies because of their pride, because of their arrogance, because they don't want to be thought less of, because they don't, they don't want to feel left out. Here in the case of Cain, that extreme example, he wants, he wants peace of conscience. Really what Cain is looking for is peace of conscience. But instead of getting it by the blood of Jesus, he tries to get it through all the web of deception. He lies to God. He says, I do not know. And then on top of that deception and dishonesty comes cynicism. Notice what Cain does. The way of Cain continues to progress. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. And then he said, am I my brother's 
keeper. Now, in order to understand this, you have to understand that, that Abel was a keeper of the sheep. He was, Cain kept nothing. Abel was a keeper. And what Abel is saying to God in his cynicism and his pride, he's saying to God, am I the keeper's keeper? Am I the one that keeps things? He keeps things. I don't keep things. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I appointed to watch out for him and to protect him and to keep him? And here's the striking thing about this. The way Cain is acting here is the way all men act by nature toward God. That's the really sobering thing. Um, In John Calvin's sermon on this, written probably in the 1540s, Um, you would think you were reading something that was written today as he goes through the things that men say when they're caught in some sin. Oh, well, don't don't go judging me. And, oh, you know, what do you think? You're you're better than me? And, oh, what about them over there? And, And he goes through pages and pages and pages of the excuses that people in his day made. And you're and you're reading this and you're like, that sounds like me and everybody else I know. 1540, 2015, nothing has changed. Cain and Abel, 1540, 2015, nothing has changed. And notice, notice what, notice how this progression continues. He first ends up with that lying and deceit and dishonesty. He then moves to the cynicism. Um, Eric Alexander and this, this struck me when I heard him say this. I, Because I've, I've thought about this. There have been times when I see the, the, um, the violence, uh, the violent anger, even in children, fighting over a toy. If you don't see that, come to my house. And we will sit down for an hour and you will see that. You will see that. The violent anger bursting out of the heart over a toy. And there have been times where I thought, that reminds me of the anger of Cain, and I've trembled, thinking that's, that's the same manifestation. Eric Alexander said, when I see that sort of cynicism, I tremble and I think of Cain. When I see that insolence, I tremble and I think of Cain. When I see the cynic, smart, godless words, I tremble and I think of Cain. When I see that angry look in the eye of someone towards someone, even in a Christian brother or sister, I tremble and I think of Cain. When someone screws up their being and say, I could murder them, and you know you've heard people say, I could just kill him, I could just kill her. He says, I tremble and I think of Cain. When I see the violence in our society, I tremble and I think of Cain. That's, that's what we're to take away from that. When we consider the way of Cain, we're to say, that is the world we live in, and these are the hearts that we have, and, and we ought to tremble over the fact that by nature our hearts are just like Cain's heart. They're just like Cain's, my heart. I don't know about you, but there is nobody in this pulpit right now today that does not have a heart just like Cain by nature, just like Cain. And yet there is hope, and that hope is kind of embedded in the way that God deals with Cain, Notice what the Lord says to him. He says um, in verse 10, the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now, God doesn't wipe Cain out. That's remarkable. Why doesn't God execute swift justice 
and eliminate Cain. God will institute the death penalty in chapter 9. There are some theologians that say, well, there's no death penalty yet because there's no civil government yet. There are others that say this is the beginning of civil government because God puts some kind of protection on Cain to protect him from other children of Adam and Eve who would seek to bring justice down on him for what they did what he did to their brother, and yet we don't know, but God protects Cain. God doesn't cast Cain off. In that sense, God is giving Cain hope. He is giving him hope that he can still repent. He is giving him hope that there is still an opportunity for mercy. My friends, if there is any portion of scripture that magnifies the grace of God and the heart of God so much, it is the story of Cain and Abel. Why God did not wipe Cain out the second he murdered Abel can only be answered by the fact that God is a God that bears long, even with unregenerate and reprobate people, that they might come to repentance and see their need for forgiveness. I said last week, if Cain had realized and owned up to his sin, the heinousness of it, and I, I can't even imagine what he must have felt when he, no, he had never seen bloodshed. Never seen bloodshed. He didn't have, he didn't have all the violent shows normalizing bloodshed. There had been no battles yet for there to be any just wars and any, any bloodshed as horrific as that may be. And yet Cain should have known as horrific as that sin was and as shocked and appalled by what he did was that there could have been mercy if he would have come to God and repented and acknowledged his sin, the hardness and the blindness and the deceitfulness. Yet God bears long. Isn't that remarkable? God bears long. Um, he says to Abel, or to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. He's telling him that the blood of, of Abel is crying out for unremitting justice. He is, God is saying, Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground, and it will not stop crying out until all the vengeance that is due to you will come to you. And yet God doesn't execute that. And the question we have to ask is why? Why doesn't God execute vengeance on Cain? Why doesn't God respond to the voice of Abel's blood crying out from the ground for justice and retribution? Why doesn't God act in swift justice? And the writer of Hebrews, it's as if God wants us to wait till the New Testament. It's as if God wants you to wait long and to ask the question, why? What, what is the rationale for that? And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says to the new covenant church, you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that smoked and that burned with fire. That's Mount Sinai. But you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to a, an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of, of uh, registered in heaven, to the spirits of just men and women made perfect. And then he says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaks better things than that of Abel. It's one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. If you have come to Christ, you have come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. How does, how does the blood of Abel and the blood of Jesus, how do they correlate? Well, here's what I think. Here's the stepping stone. Remember, we talked about the theology of the ground. Adam had come out of the ground. Men return to the ground. Whatever you think about creation, know this, from dust you are to dust you will return. And man returns back into the ground. The ground had rebelled against its maker. God had cursed the ground, thorns and thistles it would bear. And yet the story of redemption is how God is going to redeem 
not just men who have been brought out of the ground, but how he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth and bring about new creation. And he's going to redeem the curse from the ground. And we'll see in a matter of weeks that, that Noah's father names him Noah, which means rest, because he says this one will give us rest from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And it's interesting if you trace the idea and the thought of the ground and the theology of the ground in Genesis 3 and 4, you would see how prevalent it is here. Notice this, that we're told first, God says the voice of your brother's blood, verse 10, is crying out to me from the ground. That's the cursed ground. That's the place of rebellion. And then notice in 11, he says to Cain, now you are cursed from the ground. Now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength. There's a further indication that the place from which man had come and rebelled now on Cain because of the greatness of this sin and his brother being put back in the ground by his own malicious and wicked hand. Now that place would be further cursed and blessing would be harder and it would be more difficult to, for Cain to get the blessing from the ground. And the question is, why does God let him live? Why does God let Cain keep working the ground if it's going to be hard? And the answer has to be that God will do something. God will do something to lift that curse from the ground and to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. And the answer is when Jesus, the greater Abel, who is hated by his brethren, who is murdered by his brothers, whose blood falls into the cursed ground, redeems his people, his blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, he secures the new creation, he secures the fact that he will raise frail creatures of dust like us who are in him by faith up into glorified beings because his blood cries out for better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for unremitting justice and retribution. Jesus' blood, and listen very carefully, is the most important thing I'm going to say. Jesus' blood cries out for unremitting pardon on guilty sinners like us. How amazing is that? The only thing that Cain could have in the way of a witness to him is that Abel's blood cried out, retribution, 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 justice, justice, vindication, justice. And Jesus' blood shed into the ground the greater Abel. His blood, the writer of Hebrews says, cries out for better things. It says before God, be merciful to them, have mercy on them. Do not hold against them their sins. You know, that's, here's, here's, this is the mystery. The mystery of the gospel, and when you read the scriptures and you read those verses like he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities, our thought ought not be, that's right, God's merciful. That should not be your thought. Your thought should be like, how could God not hold my sins against me? And the answer is because Jesus' blood continues to cry out from the cursed ground. My father, I have finished the work. I have paid the debt. Have mercy on them. Show them mercy and grace for all of eternity. Jesus' blood cries out for you if you are in him. If you are a repentant, trusting sinner. Jesus, and it doesn't matter what you've done. That's the powerful thing. Abel's blood cried out for retribution against one person, Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness for all his people, for everybody who will look in faith to Jesus, cries out for better things 
than that of Abel. The blood of Jesus fell into the ground in the garden. It was shed in the earth on the cross. Well, the most important aspect of the blood of Christ is that it's sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven. It falls into the ground, the cursed place that he came into this world to redeem and which he then turns into the sphere of blessing. I want to note that there's one other tiny manifestation here. When God sends Cain out, there is an indication Cain is worried. You see not only uh, the, the progression of his sin um, in its development from pride to murder, and you not only see the progression of his um, arrogance toward God and his cynicism and his deceit and everything else toward God, then you see him harboring sort of self-pity. self-pity. Cain says to God, my punishment is too great for me to bear. No, it's not. You should be in hell. How is having to work the ground harder a greater punishment than hell forever? It's not. See, this, this. Cain, Cain says... My punishment is too great than I can bear. Verse 13, he says, Behold, you've driven me away today from the ground. No, Cain, you drove yourself away. Notice how he tries to blame God. You've driven me away. You've driven me away from your presence. No, Cain, you have driven yourself away from the presence of God. And notice that he says, and it's interesting, this is maybe the most fascinating thing in this passage. While Cain never cares for a single second what the infinite, almighty, all-powerful creator God thinks, not for one second does he care. He cares about what men might do to him. He has a sense of guilt, doesn't he? He knows. He knows what he, I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, people are going to kill me. He knows. He has a sense of guilt. He has a conscience. He knows. All men know by nature. Conscience is accused. But again, instead of going to the Lord and saying, thank you for your common grace. Thank you for not destroying me. Thank you for not judging me. Thank you for not wiping me out off the face of the earth. Thank you for not destroying a legacy for me. Thank you for not um, treating me according to what I deserve. Thank you and have mercy on me. And against you and you only I have sinned. Cain says, my punishment is too great to bear. And, and this is where I'm astonished. God continues to be merciful to Cain. Common mercy, common grace. He lets him live. He puts a mark on him. He says, not only will I not let men destroy you, I will show you that I am the just God and that I am the one that protects lives, even the lives of the wicked. That's a great question, isn't it, in theology? If God is holy, if God is good, if God is upright, why does he, why does he let wickedness happen? Why does he let evil happen? Well, let me say this this morning. There's a day coming when he will make every wrong right there's a great day of judgment. Nobody's slipping through that. There's no common grace on the backside of that. Um, I think Tim Keller nails it when he says, there's a day coming when everything evil will become untrue. God will, God will turn everything the way he wants it. But here God shows Cain that he is the judge of all the earth and that he even gives common mercy and grace and I think the answer is found in verse 16. Notice what Moses finally tells us. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Some of the saddest words in scripture. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There it is again, east of Eden. It's as if, remember, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, out of the temple, east of Eden. They're out of the presence of God. They're in the wilderness of this world. Now Cain has rebelled, and now he is going further east. He's going further away from the presence of God. And yet there's an intimation. There's an intimation in the words. 
that Cain ought to feel something of the painfulness of the distance from God, and it ought to make him want to return. The further man goes away from the presence of God, the more he ought to long to be back in the presence. One old writer, Alexander McLaren, says that all of Adam and Eve's descendants, every time they see a sunset, every time they see the sunset in the West, they should feel the distance from the presence of God that they have been sent east of Eden. They have been sent away from the presence of God. And as we said last week, God, in the rest of Scripture, is saying, here's how I'm making the way back into my presence. You know, I've often often struggled, and maybe you have, when when we read these accounts in Scripture of these um, notorious unbelievers who die in their unbelief, and yet God is so bountiful to them. The point is, God is bountiful to us. Paul says, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Don't you know that the goodness of God, every sip of water, we should say, I didn't work for this water. I don't care if you think you work for it because you have a faucet that puts it right in your, your house. You did not work. You did not create the water. You did not make the water. And every time God gives us a sip of water, we should say how good the creator is to us. How could I have been so sinful? Lord, have mercy on me. I need the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. I need to hear your pardoning voice. I need that blood to speak peace. I need my conscience cleansed. I need my sins forgiven. I need to be back into your presence. And God says to anyone who will come, and that's the beautiful thing, Jesus says, come. Come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. I will remove the curse from the ground. I will make blessing flow in your life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we know our own painful experiences, we know our own sinful failures, we know our own pride and disobedience and deceitful hearts, we know that we have many times and in many ways and oftentimes sophisticatedly acted like Cain in covering our sin and in going on in self-righteous pride and we pray our God that you would make us to feel this morning our need for your presence and our need for restoration back into your presence and our need for your blessing on us and on the work of our hands. We pray, our God, that you would please make us to hear the voice of the Son of God saying, I have pardoned your sins. Please make us to hear your voice this morning saying, I have accepted you by grace. I have washed you and clothed you. You are clean. We pray, our God, that you would make us to know the pardon and the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, which speaks better things than that of Abel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.